This is Chase Bailey from Left Bank Films. And Left Bank Films is proud to present our very first podcast called The Love of Film. This is our first episode, and our first episode will cover our favorite films from the 1940s. Our podcasters tonight include Todd Hunter, Kate Jurdy, Brigitte Abreu, Dennis Collins Johnson, Freeman Fletcher, and myself. For tonight's podcast, we will present our top three films from the 1940s, starting in reverse order with number three. Okay, so uh, starting off, you said film noir. So starting off, uh, number three on my top drama is Laura from 1944, uh, directed by Otto Preminger. Starring Dana Andrews, Gene Tierney, and Clifton Webb, with a screenplay by Jay Dratler, Samuel Hoffenstein, Elizabeth Reinhardt, and a uncredited King Lardner Jr. Um, and I just adore this movie. It's one that I watched in college, and I wasn't really paying attention to. And then during the pandemic, I went back to it as. I think a lot of us did just go back to stuff we'd seen before to revisit. And um, it's really a, it's a brilliant screenplay with a incredible mid narrative twist um, that flips everything on its head. Uh, and Gene Tierney um, had a very messy life, but it's very obvious why she took off after seeing Laura, which I think was early, pretty early in her career, if not at the beginning, because um, she is magnetic in it from the minute she's introduced. You're like, oh, yes, I understand. And um, painting uh, this whole obsession with this character. So, Laura, my number three pick. You know, uh, you know, we're going to have overlap, obviously. <laughs> And and Laura is my number three pick also. I what what you're talking about with Preminger, uh, the film was so dynamic. Uh, Gene Tierney was gorgeous, and the the direction was superb. Um, the cinematography was superb. I, I just loved that film. I just. I absolutely adored that film. Who was the cinematographer? Oh, gosh. Do you have it in front of you? I don't. I can get it real quick. I also want to say um, Gene Tierney's great in it. And then also Dana Andrews and Clifton Webb. Clifton Webb, who had been blacklisted in Hollywood for a short period before that because he was out. Uh, he was gay and he was out, um, which was a big no-no obviously um and he got nominated for an oscar for his performance in it as waldo lidecker who's this incredible one of the great film characters but also dana andrews who plays this kind of uh sort of i don't want to say schlubby but just like kind of every man detective but he's really interesting and he's very mellow in an interesting off-putting way um it was shot by joseph lachelle and an uncredited lucien ballard okay. which i don't really? know how uncredited cinematography works but <laughs> yeah well cinematography wasn't you guy on the camera what's your name 
Cinematography <laughs> wasn't much respect. So. <laughs> it was like in the lower tier of the credits. I, yeah. I, yeah. Lucy and Ballard worked with uh, Kubrick on uh, The Killing. They got oh. into, they, 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 they um, bounced heads off of each other off of a shot that Lucian tried to, uh, uh, Kubrick wanted, wanted it one way. It was like a tracking shot and Lucian had been around quite a bit and he figured, well, I can make this a lot easier on myself if I shoot it this way. And Kubrick said, but what about the perspective of the scene? And Lucian was like, well, that won't, that won't change much, which wasn't true. Um, Lucian was just looking to make it easier on himself. And, and Kubrick <laughs> was like, I think, God, I think he was, I mean, he was a kid, absolute kid. Um, and he said to Lucian, he said, put the camera back where I told you to put it <laughs> or get off my set. And there was a tense moment and Lucian did what Kubrick wanted to do. So <laughs> And Lucian Ballard's in a very good company there of people who do not like Kubrick. <laughs> Todd, you're next with your number three. My number three? Well, um, my number three, I have to say, just going into this, um, I, I made a couple of rules for myself that uh, I was only going to focus on the films that I owned. Uh, that way I could... Uh, learn more from everyone else around me because one of the um, one of the things that I like to do getting together with film aficionados is learning about new films that I haven't seen that people that I respect enjoy. So already I've never seen Laura, so now I have that on my list. Um, <clears throat> but the first uh, the num my number three out of my collection that I put was uh, Hitchcock's Rebecca, oh. um, which <laughs> to me is kind of funny because it's like, well, if you're gonna put that at number three, what the hell is number two and number one? <laughs> um, but uh, I remember when I saw, I, 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 the only film courses I ever took, I was lucky enough when I was at UNH, um, Peter uh, Mashu, he was a NYU, uh, film course professor and his first semester there I was lucky enough to take because he gave us all an intro to film at an NYU level course the semester after UNH said to him basically you need to dumb down this course people the, the kids aren't going to pay attention of course I got like A's it was the first time I actually got A's <laughs> in college because of the, this course so I was you know devastated once I found this out after I graduated um, but Rebecca was, of course, one of the films that I saw in uh, uh, the film course. And I remember when I saw it at the time, I was, I was kind of just, uh, I was just fascinated by Hitchcock's approach. I mean, the most I had known about Hitchcock up to that point had been uh, Psycho. Um, I, you know, just because everybody knew about Psycho at that point is, you know, coming out of high school, going into college, everyone's at least heard of it. And when they said we we're going to watch a Hitchcock film, I didn't expect this. Uh, it's based off a, a Daphne Dumar uh, novel. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect this just gothic, um, you know, castle and the 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 fog and Olivier being 
crazy and then the mother and then the you know the the housekeeper and I just I was like what is this movie this is not what I expected from Hitchcock you know um and even now when I watch it um and I had to be honest I have not seen it in a while but there are images in it that I just just sear in my brain even you know the interiors of the castle and you know that when she first came out in, in the in her gown for the party that night and Olivier is just looking at her, but just the, the, the framing of it, just the gargantuan size of the house, like right behind her, it, it's very much almost, I would, wouldn't uh, be surprised if it had influenced Kubrick's, again, Kubrick, I, can you tell he's my favorite? Uh, the Shining <laughs> decades later, because that castle was very much a character in the film. And I've never read the novel and I don't know how much that element was in the novel or how much as a visual medium Hitchcock translated that for Rebecca. But my point is, is that I was just absolutely stunned by the visuals of it. Um, I mean, I hate to say it because I mean, you, you, you don't criticize Olivier, but I mean like the acting in it, I wasn't particularly paying attention to, you know, Olivier was Olivier and, and, and you know, the actors were very much um, making sure the plot was moving forward as far as I was concerned watching it. For me, it was the visuals and the atmosphere and just the storytelling of it. So um, it became immediately one of my favorite Hitchcocks. And, um, and when I looked over at the 1940s films, uh, I knew it just had to be at least in my top three. Uh, what 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 you said that this wasn't a typical Hitchcock, and I I don't understand that because the suspense in there and the thrilling part of that, especially with you know the death of uh, Olivier's wife, mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I think it was a typical Hitchcock to me. You think it was typical because it, 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 at that time he was doing films like what Saboteur, um, even uh, what Shadow of a Doubt later on with Joseph. Oh, well, Shadow of a Doubt was earlier, wasn't it? It was forty-three, I think. I saw that actually in the theater. Hold on, I have the date written down. I thought um, Shadow of a Doubt was in the thirties. Nineteen forty-three. Forty-three. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. Oh. Um, but, but yeah, spellbound, I, spellbound was you know kind of the same. Uh, well, I, I think I kind of agree with Todd because um, Rebecca, the thing that Rebecca, as he said, it has a lot more gothic atmosphere than a lot of Hitchcock stuff, and also what Rebecca has that or doesn't have. You know, I love Rebecca. Rebecca was in my top five. Um, an honorable mention. Um, uh, what Rebecca doesn't have that other Hitchcock stuff does have is that Hitchcock movies are kind of defined and remembered by their set pieces. They're sort of suspense set pieces, these sequences with these building, you know, the tower in Vertigo, the shower scene in Psycho. And Rebecca doesn't really have that. Rebecca's this like prolonged chess match between these two women. Um and I think I, where I disagree with Todd is that I think the performances are phenomenal. I think Joan Fontaine in that movie is just fantastic. Uh, George Anderson's great. Hmm? 
and George Saunders as yes. uh, cousin Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all. I mean, it, it it's a it is an exquisite film <laughs> to sound as pretentious as possible. Um, but yes, I do. I do agree. It's great. Yeah. Movie. I, I'm with you. I'm with you on the, it's definitely in my honorable mentions. And uh, there's one shot in particular. I, I actually, I, I watched that film rather a lot. I don't know what it is about it. It's like, a, I, I come back to it a lot and I'll watch scenes from it. And I, one of my favorite things is, and I won't spoil it for anyone that hasn't seen it, but no, no, there's no. this conversation. Are we okay to do that? I don't know. Yes, spoil okay. alert. The, yeah. So Every- there's that. There's a scene in um, there. There's a scene where Laurence Olivier is, is his character is telling the, the second Mrs. De Winter about a conversation he had with Rebecca, and he says, and she and she sat over there, and it's just this frame of like this empty couch and she stood up and the frame just moves up and 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 she's not there you never see what she looks like and she just has this like it's the most that I've felt a ghostly presence from a film even with all the modern horror like supernatural stuff that they've made this film has like the feeling of a ghost story like a true ghost story um so good for October so good for this time yes and it also has one of the most amazing um, miniatures in film, which is the entire exterior of the house is this massive miniature and you would not know it to look at it. And the way that they bring the little, t- what were toy cars coming through around and stuff, and you would never notice. <laughs> well, it's really great for, um, for creating a building sense of tension that uh, you know has to break at some point, and it really is part of the anticipation process. During the, Hitchcock's really good at that anyway, but yeah, I think in this particular film that was uh, that was that worked really well. Build build the tension. Uh, somebody said once that uh, you know sus- um, suspense is more important than surprise because suspense builds and you can you can keep people involved. Surprise is wow, and it's over. You know so. Yeah, that's my two cents. So my uh, third drama is The Best Years of Our Lives Mm. uh, from 45, I believe. Let me see. I'll get it up here. I'll get all the... Oh, no, it's 46. 46, yeah. Um, And we've got Myrna Loy and Frederick Marsh. um, And it's, of course, directed by William Wyler, uh, written by Robert E. Sherwood and McKinley Cantor. All right. And uh, anyway, it's, it's my third top uh, drama because I, I was sort of re-watching a lot of the films from the 40s thinking about what still resonated with my heart today and you know because there's a lot of allowances I have to make for like right that was different culturally or like right that was a thing um, and this film really feels I don't know I just I cried you know and that's always a good sign to me it's it's got this heart of like three different homecoming stories for these three different veterans and they've all got such different they're received so lovingly which is great to see but they've each got you know that one of them struggles with alcoholism one of them struggles with the fact he lost his hands and doesn't know if, if he's still going to be loved and and accepted and and seen as competent and uh and another one is dealing with like a wife that like he just married like a month before he left and he comes back home and it's like, do I even know you? Like now I get to be acquainted to my wife and like, actually, am I in love with someone else? It's so weird. It's like, I don't know. I think it's it's something that I would absolutely watch today. 
And that's kind of how I ranked my films was like, this isn't just a film that if I was in the 1940s that I would love, I, I love it now. And um, I think it's got a lot of resonance for um, vets. And of course we have a lot of those kinds of films in, in this decade, but it's, yeah, it's just gorgeous. And it's very long, but it's gorgeous. <laughs> was it one of the first films that dealt with veterans coming home? Um, That's a good question. Because I've been aware I of think so. I think so, Todd. Yeah, I think I think it was for sure. That was a that was the very first film that I actually watched that was about veterans coming home. Wow. Yeah, so and, it's, and it's dealt with beautifully. It's so nuanced, and it's it, you know, it's just it's an absolute tearjerker. And Myrna Loy is great in it, and she doesn't get enough uh, props. You know, she never won an Oscar, um, and she she got like an honorary one at the end of her life, and she's just wonderful in it. She's so good. Here's your honorary to. Oscar, and there's the kitchen door. We'll see you later. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't uh, seen Best Years of Our Lives, but when you said Myrna Loy, I was like, well, I'll watch it now. Um, yeah. Also, isn't the the veteran who lost his hands, wasn't he played by an actor who, like, he wasn't an actor? He actually yeah. had yeah. lost. Yeah, he's an amputee, yeah. Yeah, that's from, from the war. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't really done back then. So that's yeah. a big. There's this heartbreaking <laughs> scene where he's showing the girl, he's like been trying to push her away, this girl that you know, was his sweetheart before the war. And and he's like, come up here. I want you to see what has to happen. And, and he shows her like him getting ready for bed and he's taking off his harness and he's taking off his hooks. And, um, and he's like, now I'm as helpless as a baby. I can't, if that door shuts, I can't get out of here. If, if I fall down, I, there's no one here to help me up. Like, you know, and, and mm -hmm. he really is like, this is what you're getting into. And it's just, and she's just so, you know, accepting. It's so beautiful. It's, it can be yeah. I think you brought up an interesting point, Freeman, that um, it's it, back then, it, um, you know, using someone true to form, it wasn't really done. But interestingly, I think just as a side note, the 40s, the 40s were so progressive. They kind of parallel to the 70s and that. And I mean, clearly Cinema Verte started before them, but it became very popular then. And um, I think there was a lot of that um, using real people. I mean, Antonioni comes to mind, which is a brief point, just using real people. Um, so I don't know, just as a side note, and I don't know if it was, I'd have to study um, the cinema a little bit more from that decade and I'm doing that. But that that's an interesting point. Uh, Kate, have you seen the film? No, I haven't. And I'm actually, when I give my reviews, I'm going to do a preface like Todd did. Um, it's a little bit similar, um, but I have not. But I, it's on my list um, to see it. Okay. Yeah, I feel like we all now have running lists. We're on. I'm yeah, like, okay. Oh, like. At first, I was going to watch every one. And then when Chase was like, y'all, there's so many, like, just pick it. So, and I, and also make a list so we don't do the overlap. And I never saw, I went back on the, um, the Google and the spreadsheet and I didn't see any lists made. And I'm like, I think we're all going to probably take from different pools, which is great <laughs> because otherwise I was going to watch, like, I was going to binge watch quite a few of them, even though I watched Quite a few anyway. I was going to do all of them. Fantastic. Okay, Kate, you're up next. Number yeah, three. Hi guys. 
Yep. So, um, well, I already kind of explained that I put them all together, but like Todd, but not really for the same reason. And I'm not a cheap person, but I already have a few streaming services going. And I just found like, oh, there were a lot, especially the um, Hitchcock that you had to pay for that weren't either. I couldn't, my mom is a big, this era of Hollywood, especially 40s and 50s, probably some 30s as well. So I got some from her and then whatever I didn't have on my streaming service. And also I didn't watch. So there's quite a few that you all have already mentioned that I have not seen. And then um, there are a few that um, I, quite a few that I had seen from film studies classes. I actually did a Nazi cinema film class, which if anyone's interested in talking about that. And so and my professor actually interestingly was the premier Germanic um, professor of, um, at Harvard, so Professor Rensler, and he wrote quite a few books. So he, some of these like Mrs. Miniver, I could never revisit again. I mean, I actually wrote a paper on that and paralleled it to a, um, a propaganda film from Nazi cinema, actually. Oh yeah, they, was, cons they considered it, the American folks considered it propaganda. Like even- It actually, yeah. so yeah, it's funny that you said that, Bridget, because a lot of people look at me like I have 10 heads and sorry, I don't want <laughs> no, to- No, they distributed it specifically as propaganda for so, the war effort and and actually, that actress she sold war bonds because she was like was it Greer Garson is that who it is so yeah I think yeah you know was. what's interesting about about Mrs. Miniver um is that it was considered I just want to get it was considered part like between 1941 I believe in 1945 um it was called anti-nazi anti-Nazi cinematic creations. And in between England and the United States, um, probably rightfully so out of guilt because they should have been there a lot fucking sooner, um, created these cinematic expressions of, oh, we're the heroes, aren't we so wonderful? We did all this great stuff. No, you didn't, you waited too long. And so I, I couldn't, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't visit Mrs. Miniver, but I'd be share, I'd be happy to, you know, chat with anyone who's interested. I wrote a paper on it. Um, but yeah, there, it's interesting that you knew that, Bridget. You probably learned that in film studies too. <laughs> I actually learned it from, and shout out to a great YouTube uh, person named, or well, she's not named, but her channel is Be Kind Rewind. And she does awesome video essays on all these. She does like deep dives on specific years. Um, yeah. And she did one on uh, Greer Garson Galvanizes a Nation, which is how I know about that. Because they really yeah. used her persona to try to get people to buy war bonds. And like people saw her as the character and really related to that. And before 1942, before we had been involved really in the war, um, all the execs had been like, we can't do anything about what's happening because America's staying neutral. So, and, and then as soon as they got the go ahead, like that was the first film and they were like, all right, we're gonna put out all of our like nationalistic, you know, uh, propaganda. They actually called it propaganda they had yeah it's yeah. their anti-nazi cinematic creations that were considered um propaganda from the other side so to speak um yeah and i think warner brothers as a side note was the only one that stopped distributing films to um germany because it was too profitable for a lot of the other um production companies they like you said they wanted to remain quote neutral so WB stepped in and stopped 
in the 30s, actually. I think it was like maybe 1938. Wow. And you know, this is a funny tidbit. And sorry, I'll, I'll shut up about this in a second because I want to get to your number three. But um, apparently after the war, uh, they would show films in Germany that were kind of like about the Holocaust and about the war and what had happened. And German citizens who were, you know, very much hurting at that time uh, financially would have to sit and watch these films and then they could get like the equivalent of like food stamps. Um, and so if they sat and watched these films by like, you know, people like William Wyler and Billy Wilder was one, um, uh, then they would be able to actually get the food stamps. So, so it was like this way of being like, no, look at what happened. Look at what you did and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting. And, you know, Charlie Chaplin, of course, that's on my top with The Great Dictator. I mean, that was released in the 40, 1940 before the invasion. It was very controversial. So anyway, so interesting. Um, anyone that wants to talk about that more, I have tons of notes from that class. <laughs> and it was a hard one to get through. Um, I had friends help me actually get through it. Um, it, was, it was really hard, but my professor was amazing. And I think it's also... Very important to know because what we learned in history, it was very one-sided. So you, you get the whole truth, um, whether it's controversial or not, um, about what really happened. So, um, yeah. At any rate, I um, so there were quite a few that I haven't seen, um, but I the ones I'm a film noir junkie like Chase, <laughs> like huge from 1940s and then also um, the 70s. Um, in 80s. I just watched a big retro on that. So my number three actually is A Double Life. Oh. Believe it or not. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I'm a huge Ronald Coleman fan. And also I, I just, um, oh, and I'll give you like everyone else today, like how you guys were doing that. So I'll give you the director is George Booker. Um, Signe Hasso, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. Signe Hasso, um, Ronald Coleman. Um, and kind of an odd choice, right? But I love him. And I also really love um, the representation of our industry and anyone that's in, you guys are all in the industry. So I just thought it was kind of a not so hyperbo um, hyperbolic reflection, um, the lack of limits, boundaries, and at times sanity that acting requires. I wrote down some of the quotes because I thought they were really, um, you know, apropos, I, I think at the end, just at the end, Ronald Coleman says, um, Bill, you know, keep an eye out for the papers right before he ties. Don't let them say I was a bad actor, you know? And I'm also a sucker for um, the film within a film. I don't know how you guys feel, but there are stories within a story. So I love that they were doing Othello and there was also the whole film going on. So I, actor within an actor, film within a film. Um, there was a part, I'm gonna relate it to um, The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Again, love the meanings of both these movies. There was certain areas, and I'm all for like a slow moving film, a long film, that I actually felt you could rewind or cut out of the film that kind of dragged in certain parts. Um, and specifically, there was a scene from Othello, and I don't know if that's because of the purity that, that you know, Shakespearean, um, you know, plays and also adaptations kind of, they require them or you get, you know, like Hamlet, they kind of gave it a hard time because they cut out two and a half hours, but it's like, it's a little bit overly precious in my, in my point of view. But um, 
Yeah, I loved I loved stylistically how the film was set up. I, to me, there were rem and, and someone else brought this up. I don't know in what film there was it would there was a gothic feel maybe to were you talking about Rebecca? Rebecca. Yeah. So I I wonder Chase. I don't know if you can add, you know add in here, but I wonder if there's um, a connection between some noir and German expressionism because I found that going on here that it was definitely noir in the sense that these kind of moral boundaries, especially between the detectives and the actors, they were kind of blurred. And I think that's why I love noir so much that it, it's not non-judgmental and it opens up this kind of fantasy world. Well, why are you saying concept. German expressionism? Well, there were certain times in A Double Life that I felt that claustrophobic feeling that, that German expressionism theater gives the viewer, like certain Fritz Lang's films in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh yeah, yeah, out. yeah. So I'm wondering if there were remnants of that in the early noir years. Are you especially talking else. about the scenes with when Ronald Coleman is with his mistress before he kills her? Or, or? Yeah, there was that, like her her apartment seemed almost like a set chase. Like Yeah, it's like a little narrow stairwell and uh, this little brownstone kind of walk-up kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I definitely found reflections of that in this film, but um, yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, just if the detective. Well, everything but, was claustrophobic in that film, if I remember correctly. Do you think so? Even even the uh, you know the uh, Othello sets were claustrophobic, if yeah, I remember I correctly. Yeah, the curtain and um, yeah, it's certain. I mean, it was just such a blur between, and again, I don't know if that was a characteristic. Who was the director? Was it Kukor? Yes. Uh, okay, so the, so the director purposely, I think, was, you know, the double life. I mean, he was he was living Othello and living as the actor. What was Ronald Coleman's name? Oh, my gosh, I wrote it down. I don't think I remember it. I don't, I don't remember, but... Um, it, um, but he did a wonderful. He did a wonderful it job. Was, it was a. Was it? Did Tony? he get the Academy Award? No, Tony was the other guy. Britta. I don't think so. I think he was nominated. He did not get it. I can't remember who he lost to. That's something that we've done because we've done podcasts on. Um, but that's a, that's that's. I don't usually pay attention to that because I. Think yeah, that's a good. that's a good film. It, I loved it, and I think Ronald Coleman is such a force, and he. I don't know. For that time period, I, I liked that, um, you know, talk. I'd have to go back and relook at it. I haven't seen it for a long time. I think you should, and you can get it. I think I messaged you guys. It's free on YouTube. But, Todd, you kind of hit on an interesting point where the acting is a little bit different back, or you don't insult Olivier. But, you know, Olivier was notoriously big for the screen. You know, that Dennis... Um, <laughs> Um, Dustin Hoffman talked about how he had to kind of pull Olivier aside on Marathon Man. It was like, you need to take it down a little bit. You're a little, and he, you know, he says, are you saying I'm too big? You know, is it too, is it too <laughs> big? You know, so I totally, but the thing about Ronald Coleman, he's so kind of how I feel about Boris Karloff there. Again, these films, I think were ahead of their time. And I think Ronald Coleman was so much of a naturalistic actor. He just, he embodied it and it was nothing showy. Um, it, he just kind of embodied the character. So, um, yeah, there was another interesting line. Um, yeah, and I think his, well, Tony was, 
he was talking to Tony. Tony was the guy that was in love with Britta. I'm forgetting, I'm forgetting Coleman's name in this. I apologize, guys. But I, I thought it was interesting. He said he was talking about how he's, he thinks he doesn't even realize that he's doing this. He thinks they're bad dreams. And Tony says, whatever the terrors of waking hours, at least you can fight them. I thought that was interesting because he was explaining that, you know, basically in, in your in your in your dreams you can't, but at least you can in your waking hours. But here's Ronald Coleman not knowing the difference between the two and unable to fight them. Not I, even going I don't. I, I, I apologize. I don't remember that movie that well i just know that i loved it it's one of my honorable do you want princes. spoiler alerts well he basically can't well, no, I, I, I know he kills the mistress i mean there's remember. no spoiler alerts in this yeah. we're, okay. we're talking about films from the 40s um, i think you guys i haven't like, seen it i yeah, want to be surprised i haven't either i don't think i've seen, heard of it have, do you know ronald coleman are you familiar with his work no i'm oh, a big fan phenomenal. of george q Corey's. Like okay. com romantic comedies, but yeah. I don't really know any of his. I thought he only did romantic comedies. I'm gonna write that down. I'm not familiar with his romantic comedies. Um, no, Ronald Coleman is. Didn't he fantastic. do the Philadelphia, Philadelphia story. story? Yes, we got yes, one Philadelphia coming up. Story. Yeah, <laughs> one of my favorite romantic comedies. Okay, so I'm gonna have to cut you off, Kate. We're gonna have to go to Dennis. I'm done. I've been What's waiting up? for Dennis forever. You don't cut me off. I'm done. I love that. <laughs> Well, God damn it. It's interesting the broad swath of films that we all uh, we all are attached to. Um now I can't judge solely on best because affection has a lot to do with it. And uh of course that influences just about everything. But um I just wanted to say first off that it's it's really hard for me and maybe for anybody to uh, not think that Citizen Kane is the best film of all time, and certainly of the 40s, but, uh, but I'm going to leave it off my list. And uh, I know somewhere the ghost of Orson Welles is going, what? There's a person in New Hampshire who has a list of favorite 40s films, and my film is not even on it, but, you know, because um, it's a when great When we get film. to the 80s, Transformers, the movie will definitely be on our <laughs> list. <laughs> well, um, so my number three is uh, Key Largo. Ooh, and uh, the reason I like Key Largo so much as a film, and it's a play that they shot, but performance, performance, performance. Um, it's got a great cast. Um, let's see the cast, because uh, you know old guys' memories are not really good. Let's see. Oops. Bogart, the... Robinson, Bacall. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And How could you not remember hard them. to beat? <laughs> Bogart, Bacall, and you, oh. Lionel Barrymore, who's not playing a villain in a wonderful <laughs> life, uh, like he did, um, is very sympathetic and, you know, acting out of a wheelchair. I mean, you got to give it to a guy who can actually get cast and can't. He, 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 I thought it was uh, arthritis, but uh, I'm, I'm told that he fell and he broke his shoulder and he broke his hip and a knee or something like that. And it added to the fact of his arthritis. And you can see with his hands all the time when they're showing his hands that his arthritis was pretty serious but anyway he acts from the wheelchair and he does a great job very very empathetic sympathetic um uh john houston directed and uh he and bogart did some some really cool stuff together he comes up again for me at, at some point um the uh it's the last bogart and bacall film uh which they're all really good i've seen them i have another was that their last 
Yeah, the last one together. Huh. The Have and Have Not uh, is is you know somewhere on my list. <laughs> um, but that was their first film where they fell in love. Films where the stars fall in love. We should just do that as a as a title. <laughs> um, but uh, but Key Largo, um, you know, it's uh, it's got great performances. I don't know why. Um, you know, I, I I feel like Bogart got uh, he really underplayed that, and he could play he could play bad guys. He started out playing bad guys in the Dead End and uh, Petrified Forest in the '30s, and uh, of course he's a leading man by this point. And uh, he does it understated so well, the war hero who comes to tell the family of his friend who was killed about the friend because he feels he owes it uh, to them. And uh, so he ends up falling in love with uh, the wife, the the widow. And um, Lionel Barrymore is the father. And then uh, Edward G. and his mob (laughs) show up. And uh, apparently in the original play, they were Mexican gangsters. But... uh, what what's really cool is that um, Edward G. Robinson portrays a gangster who knows his time is is over. The gangster time is finished. It ain't the thirties anymore. It's the late forties, and um, he uh, he does a great job of, of playing that uh, that that character uh, just just beautifully. Everything everything in it is is top notch as far as performance goes. They build suspense. Uh, it's it's beautifully shot in um, in black and white. The cinematographer was uh, Carl Freund. And uh, I remember looking him up to see what else he did. But let me just mention that. I found that uh, a lot of times in the 40s, the cinematographers, I don't know how the hell they did it. Some of them are making 12 films a year. And great great cinematographers. Um, This guy, uh, let's see. um, A lot of drinking and cigarettes. That's how they did it. Yeah, yeah, a lot of of not living too long. Um, (laughs) But they burned bright. He had done done a heck of a lot of films before um, this one, and um, but he 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 died in uh, or he stopped making films about 1950, so a little little time after after this. But um, yeah, I've seen that film. I've seen uh, uh, Key Largo many times. What a great film! I want to go to Key Largo just to just to say, hey, I've been there. Yeah. Um, I can't but, believe uh, I still haven't seen it. I've always wanted to see that film. Thank you so much, Dennis. For okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off, Dennis, because we're running Wait, short I had of time. Stuff. I researched it. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna go to Mr. Fletcher uh, and go with his number two. And All we're right. Have to so pick up the pace a little bit. <laughs> we'll never um, get there. Spoiler alert, my two and my one are from the same directors um, and actually the same cinematographers um, and a lot of the same cast. Um, But my number two is uh, The Red Shoes from 1948, uh, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, starring Moira Shearer, Anton Walbrook, and Marius Goring. Um, And it was shot by Jack Cardiff. It's this, it, it's one of, it might be the most beautiful movie ever made. It's shot in, uh, it's like the prime example of Technicolor. Um, it's a classic melodrama. You've seen it a million times before, but you've never seen it like this. Uh, there's an incredible, it's all about ballet and dance. And um, there's an incredible like 15 Lucky. minute sequence in the middle that's the full ballet that's just breathtaking to witness um so yeah the red shoes i just gave a sort of uh, my thoughts it, it's a beautiful movie um, i've never seen it i've never it, seen it. 
it's one of those I saw it in college not in a class but Criterion used to do these wonderful little short videos where it's like the three things their three favorite things about whatever oh, yeah. movie they were releasing and they released one for this movie that really is a great trailer so I'd recommend looking that up um it got me to watch it and I'm very grateful it did so <laughs> I saw it. At the, it was playing at the Brattle Freeman. I don't know if you ever get down there. And I can't remember if I saw the full length of it. Or, I think I did. It's, but you know, sometimes when you it see is pretty so many long. films, it's very long. Um, but it was beautiful. Yeah, the whole Technicolor. I remember that. Yeah. And if okay. you haven't seen Murder by Contract, that's another one Scorsese loves. You'll see where he gets his sense of humor that he adds into his films by watching. It's a B film from the 50s. It's fantastic. Okay. Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan was somewhat based off of Red Shoes, wasn't it? Really? Black Swan? Probably. I think any movie about ballet is in some way indicative of... Did you see Black Swan? The Red Swan? I haven't, because I saw Perfect Blue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> now, is the Red Shoes... I, I don't think I've seen that either. Is that... Is that similar to uh, the Hans Christian Andersen story, The Red Shoes? Yeah, so the ballet that they do in the movie is based off that. Um, It does not end with the woman chopping her legs off with an axe, but um, it's essentially the same story, so. You know, it was for kids, I mean, what could they do? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my, my number two is, we don't have to spend much time on this, is Rebecca. I just... I, I loved Rebecca. Um, uh, you know, um, I think Olivier uh, and Fontaine did a wonderful job, especially Fontaine. Uh, I, I, I loved the story. I loved the feel. Uh, I loved the ending. Um, I loved the start and the way they kind of sandwiched that, the start and the, in, the end together. And, you know, and of course, I love Hitchcock. I, what can I say? I just, uh, I, I loved his directing. Uh, everything about that was good. Um, you know, and I know that you talk about these big open spaces, this big Mandalay mansion, et cetera, but they also brought it in, in a lot of instances. But, you know, they start out in the French Riviera, they, you know, and they go to Mandalay and everything's big and gracious and all that kind of crap, but it, it becomes claustrophobic at the end. It, it, they bring it in to some really tiny spaces and then they bring it to the, the big ending with the fire at the mansion. So it's like, I just, I like the way it was done. It was like open and free and everything's carefree. And then they start adding in the suspense you know, what's really going on here? What's, you know, what happened to Rebecca? You know, is, you know, is she really missing? Was that the real body or whatever? So um, I just, it was my number two. Um, And, and I'm going to make a little caveat here. As Hmm. Dennis said earlier, I'm going to reiterate. I have left Casablanca and Citizen Kane off of these, this list. 
I was expecting somebody else to do those. <laughs> I, was like, Whoa. I did the exact opposite. They're both on my list. You can figure something Fantastic. out. Okay. okay. I just, I left those two off my list. I mean. Because I guys, felt like you had to. You know what guys, I mean? The guys that have known me for years, I've, I've posted on Facebook my top 50 films, my top 50 books that I've ever read. And my number one film of all time is Casablanca. My number two film is Citizen Kane. So but they don't make the list. You're they don't make the list in this one uh, because wow. there's, there's other things to see, and mm -hmm. and and that's what I'm talking about. I mean, is Godfather Godfather up there for you, Chase? It's number three. Godfather okay, so number four. None of those would. Be, my number one is Antonioni, actually. So it's in. But I think you would echo a lot of people's personal choices. Yeah, but when we get to the Godfather decade, I'm not going to mention Godfather <laughs> either. You know, because there's I, so many fucking great films out there. It's just, yeah. uh, and when I when I rewatched uh, rewatched uh, Rebecca and Laura and some of these other films, I went, how did I miss them? They're just really, really great films. Yeah. Okay. So I also just. Oh, just really quickly, and you can cut this, but um, I just wanted to shout out uh, again, Joan Fontaine. Uh, the next year she was in a okay Hitchcock movie called Suspicion, which she won an Oscar for. And she pretty much only won that Oscar because of how good she is in Rebecca. So I, I, I um, agree with you. And they owed it to her. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Suspicion wasn't that good of a film. Yeah. Now, did she the lose milk, to... the light bulb and the milk's the best part in that movie? So. I think she lost to Ginger Rogers and Kitty Foyle. Yes, she did. And Ginger Rogers wasn't that good at Kitty Foyle. <laughs> She's a good actress. It's it's a lot of people voted for her because they liked her more than all the other actresses personally, yeah. and that mm. was the thing. Yeah, Joan Fontaine was notoriously not a very nice person. <laughs> yeah, Odd. or Ka you know, two. Catherine Hepburn had stuff as well. Yeah, Odd, number two, Betty Davis. Anyway, number two. Um, well, it's it's impossible to talk about 1940s films without talking about noir. And my number two is is one of, if honestly not the quintessential film noir. This is the film that if someone's like, "What the hell is film noir?" I'm like, "Just watch this movie," and that's Double Indemnity. Yes. Um, oh. Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, Edward G. Robinson, Dennis. You brought up Robinson, oh. directed by uh, Billy Wilder, who uh, later went on to direct one of my favorite 1950s films, but that'll be not next time, but the time after with Sunset Boulevard. Um, he directed I mean, my favorite films so, yeah, of all it, times. It, so. it, uh, uh, it's it's based off of a novel by James M. Cain, uh, or excuse me, Raymond Chandler, and it was uh, a screenplay by uh, James M. Or no, the book was James M. Cain, and Raymond Chandler adapted it along with Billy Wilder. That's right. I always get those two mixed up. Um, but this movie is just, you know, I, the first time I saw this, I just rolled with it. I, I was, you know, I love... It's got all of the quintessential film noir tropes, all of them. You've got the, the, the schlub who is just, you know, uh, desperate and horny and comes across the femme fatale who just plays him like a fiddle. Um, you know, Barbara Stanwyck, you know, that whole, I love that whole descent down the stairs with the anklet. And he's like, he's like there with the insurance and, you know, he works for the insurance company and he's, he's waiting to talk to her husband and he's just, and it's, you know, the extremely hot summer 
And uh, a little bit of um, trivia, anklets apparently in the 40s, it was an urban legend that married women would wear an anklet to say that they were married, but that they were available. Mm. So that's why it focuses so much on that in the movie. And, you know, you have, you have Fred McMurray, who's a real, like, normally play just really nice guys. And he's still kind of playing a, a, a nice guy, but it's kind of like a nice guy who's at the end of his rope. You know, at, at nighttime, he goes off. And uh, when he's not, you know, going down insurance, trying to break insurance issues, he's, you know, playing bowling, you know, by himself. Um, and is, you know, his boss played by Edward G. Robinson. Uh, I loved how the two, their relationship was as strong. He's, Edward G. Robinson is basically, the, like the two of them have a very healthy, like male friend relationship. Uh, and there's this part near the end of the film, the, spoiler alert, shut off if you haven't seen it, where Neff, who has been recording his entire Walter Neff has been recording his entire experiences as a, as a um, uh, uh, admission of guilt. Well, J Robinson finds him and lights a cigarette for him while the police are on their way. And I forget what the line is, but it's something along the lines of Walter Neff is like, says, well, you're, you know, one of the best partners a guy could ask for. And Robinson says more than that because they were just such close friends. And then Walter Neff responds back to him. I love you too. And it, it's almost jarring now to see Fred McMurray say that to Edward G. Robinson with such, uh, showing such male friendship in the midst of this tragic situation. You don't really, you don't see that anymore. You haven't seen that in a long time. Um, so you have these weird, wonderful parallel between the relationship, you know, Walter Neff has uh, what's, uh, what's oh, Keys, Barton Keys, that's who Edward G. Robinson is playing, between Walter Neff and Keys, and then Walter Neff and uh, Phyllis, the femme fatale. And, uh, you know, it's it just the, the, the cinematography by uh, John F. Seitz, who uh, shot most of Billy Wilder's films, if, if I mean, if not all of his greatest ones. Um, it just, it's tight, it's... Uh, it's humorous. It's uh, it's hot. I mean, the 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 sexual tension between Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray. I never thought I'd say something with Fred McMurray would be hot. <laughs> it is. I mean, you can sense the palpable desperation on behalf of Neff and just how Stanwyck just manipulates the hell out of him. She's fantastic. Um, so. You know, I, I, I had to put that at number two. You know, noir is one of my favorite genres. It's what I focused on in when I studied film. I wrote a 25-page um, basically seminar about it uh, for my final thesis. And um, I don't really think, I, I, I think I'd be less, I, I think I'd be more likely to cut off Citizen Kane from my top three than I could a quintessential noir from the 40s because Kane does pull a lot of noir elements into the film, even though it's not a noir. But I think if you want to represent 1940s and noir, Double Indemnity is, a, is an absolutely perfect film to just recommend to anybody, uh, but not only for the filmmaking, but also for just the social mores at the time, uh, the style, uh, the sexual tension at the time, you know, what was going on 
behind closed doors in suburbia while everybody, you know, was, you know, everyone had the perfect nuclear family, basically, you know? Um, it's, it's a hell of a movie that I still think just has an amazing impact even today. Yes, it does. And it has one of the great noir soundtracks, one oh, yeah. of the great opening themes. Ooh. Yeah, who did, hold on, who did that? That was, uh, I'm looking it up right now. Um, who did the music? It was, cast and crew. Sorry, I was looking at trivia. Um, Miklos Rosa. Not familiar. Oh. <laughs> okay, Brigitte. He did at least one great score. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brigitte, it's number two for you. My number two is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, mm. I feel like that's one of those movies that probably you could leave off your list, you know, because it's like, but people, I think, genuinely don't know that it's kind of from that era. They're kind of like, oh, is that from the 40s? And it's just so it's been so timeless and it, it sticks around for a reason. And the reason why I don't have Citizen Kane and Casablanca on my lists are because I genuinely don't like them. They, <laughs> they don't resonate for me, neither of them. Um, and It's a Wonderful Life is, uh, um, it's about love and it's about community and it's about how your life adds up to more and it means something. And um, I just, I, I just think it's, a beautiful beautiful film it's the first film that frank capra did when he got back from the war um because uh, he i think he enlisted in like 41 or something 42 maybe or something um yeah he finished up his last film and then left and then came back and did it's a wonderful life and it's it's genuinely so life-affirming and so beautiful and the performances in it really resonate still today um yeah there's just this big heart of that film that makes me cry more every time I watch it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I watched it as a kid and kind of, I think as a kid, I only really liked the parts where like he was falling in love with Mary, you know, mm -hmm. like, like that as a kid, that was like, I, I thought that was the like, fun stuff. Yeah. And also like one of the hottest things is like her losing her bathrobe and yeah. he's just like, oh, <laughs> I have your and she's like, oh, don't give me back my robe, George Bailey. You know, it's like, it's, this is an opportunity that doesn't come across every day. Yeah. Maybe There's I should stuff. sell tickets. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about hot, that whole part where he's on the phone with her oh, boyfriend yeah. and she's yes. like right next to him. Holy yeah. shit. I know. <laughs> That's got sparks you can't find in movies at all nowadays. Exactly. And how he grabs her and they both like just fall in fashion. Yeah. Holy and shit. the moon and them singing about the light of the moon together. Yeah. It's like, that's a part of the movie I don't think people talk about a lot, but it's one of the best love stories, I think. And uh, and just the fact that like she rallies the town for him and uh, and that people show up. And I think that there's a lot, I mean, even more today, maybe about banks and community and not lining up. And that film is so, there's just like a really healing aspect to it, I think. And it's, it's very much about how we can you know, hopefully see the best in others and in, and in ourselves and, and to look at our lives as something that, you know, I mean, it's, it's all the things, it's all the things that's going to make me gooey and cry. I just, I just wish they would have used a different last name. George Bailey, my brother. <laughs> oh, Chase. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a million great scenes in that, that film. A million. Yeah, the pool, the pool opens up. Right, like 
it feels like a romantic comedy. And then you're like, oh, this is about so much more. And one of the things that I love too about it is that, you know, in a lot of these like magical realism things where like there's some lesson to be learned from like some element of, you know, something like Clarence coming in and changing everything and being the element of change. George doesn't have to do anything except ask for his life back. You know, it's it's not like he, he he doesn't like click his heels three times or anything. It's it's there's no like, oh, I it, it's just he just has to recognize that Clarence is like his angel and that his life was worth something and he just has to ask for it back. Yeah, and it's Susan that beautiful Powell. message. It's just that beautiful message of like you know, especially. I think it's such a beautiful holiday film because so many people get depressed and blue around the holidays and to see this film about someone like thinking about ending their lives and, 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 uh, and just realizing like, Oh, I just have to ask for it back in a moment. I just have to see that I'm worth something to the people around me and to my community, even if I don't think so in this moment. And, and how he, he, how he impacted so many lives. Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah. Like yeah. he didn't think he did anything. Clarence. He thought he was yeah. he was actually told you're more worth more dead than alive. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And then to find out how much like Clarence says to him, you know, you really did have a wonderful life. Look at everything, like the whole thing about the brother. Yes. He wasn't there to save Harry, so they weren't there. He wasn't there to save everyone on that on that boat. Yeah. So all the soldiers died. Yeah. It's such a powerful moment. Like I People, people give It's a Wonderful Life a lot of shit. Like, whenever I bring it up to anybody, they're like, oh, yeah, that was played a million times. I'm like, have you ever watched it? This is like some dark, soul, introspective shit. Yeah. I'm like, you know, Jimmy Stewart is, is genuinely having a breakdown on screen, pulling from his experience in the war when he's yelling at the family. You know, that is that's that to me, that scene is not of the performances at the time it's disturbing because you're literally seeing a man an actor pull from his own very dark experiences and showing that for the film and people i i that scene where he's breaking down at the family is is tough to watch yeah. you know and especially knowing that he's pulling from his own emotional trauma which i don't think at the time anybody was really recognizing the trauma men were going through in that war you know you came back and you just resumed life like normal you know um it, it's a hell of a movie that's filled with a lot of layers yeah uh, it's 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 one of my favorite films of all time i yeah. it, because there's so much there and and i like the way that kafka added in the deep stuff capra. with the vi capra capra yeah or cap capra Capricorny. That just I thought you said Kafka. Capricorny. You said, I thought you said Kafka too. That's why I was Saint like, Kafka. wait, Kafka. <laughs> did I say Kafka? Well, give me another Tony. But anyway, I love the way that Capra really just brought in uh, the lightheartedness of Clarence yeah. with the heaviness of what was going on. Okay, Kate, number two. Hey guys, um, so do we have 18 minutes left for the entire podcast? Yeah. Okay, so I'll go quickly. I'm, I guess, in a way it's good I did this because I wouldn't rank either of these two, well, actually I really like Casablanca, but I wouldn't rank Citizen Kane as like the greatest film of all time. It's one of them, or my, even my favorite, but it is my number two. Um, I have to say with these 
even as much as I love the 40s cinema, Hollywood cinema, I don't know if I've shared this with you guys that know me, but I'm more into like the art house, independent foreign film. So this is kind of like a new avenue for me. Even as much as I love the 40s, they're irreverent and actually have a tie for number one. And I don't even know if it's a film you might not have even heard of. So um, this was kind of cool for me to <laughs> explore these. So number two is Citizen Kane. Um, we all know who was in it. I also just want to add, and I don't know how you guys feel. I absolutely adore Joseph Cotton. He was oh. deranged in Shadow of a Doubt. And he he's in this. Um, he's also in Gaslight. He was the savior yeah. in Gaslight, um, as you know. But he just... Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't get enough. He's so yummy, right? For lack of a better term. And I just, I love how, I, I, I don't think I could rewatch Shadow of a Doubt. And that actually reminds me a little bit of like early 80s noir, how it's like super creepy and inappropriate, like the boundaries that are kind of crossed there. Because I actually saw that on the big screen. Um, but yeah, anything Joseph Cotton just like he's think, like for me a Peter Lorre, he ups the value. <laughs> was it wasn't Joseph Cotton's first film, Citizen Kane? I that think it was. I'm not sure. I think he was I think in, he brought I think in in the film Citizen Kane, at the very credits, I think they mentioned all the theatrical people that, that did their first film on Citizen Kane. And I I believe, don't think it was, but I'll show What was the name um, of the players? Come on, Brigitte. What was the name of the players? Um, yeah, he was he was in other films. Too it was his it was his second like film film. Too much uh, Johnson was, was before that in the Mercury no. Theater on the air. It was with the Mercury Theater. Yeah, that was too Mercury. much Johnson. I've seen that, and that was made in the seventies. That was nineteen. Uh, well, anyways, um, so probably a remake in the seventies. Okay, so Citizen Kane. We all know Citizen Kane. Yeah, it's and I saw that in a film studies class, and we and, saw it on the screen. And I would love to spend time talking as much as we talked about. It's a wonderful life about how I think Casablanca is just as good a movie. Love so, Regine, another it. time and another date. Yeah, we'll <laughs> battle it out on another. On another <laughs> I really want to be there for that. I I gotta hear. <laughs> okay, Dennis, number two. Number two, well, you know, we talked about Olivier there a, a while back for um, Rebecca and uh, reminded me of uh, Henry V, which I was just looking at again, which is a great film and didn't make my list. But it reminded me of a story a friend of mine told me. He was uh, the fight master for Henry V, Olivier's Henry V. His name was Patty Crane, and I knew Patty. He's been long since gone now, but um, I hired him to come be uh, part of the fight directors for the Mount Hope Estate. And um, he told me that, uh, and in his book, actually, which he, he gave me a copy of, um, that he was making Henry V and Olivier uh, suggested something to him about the fights. And he was kind of like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, and ignored it. <laughs> Olivier fired him. And he said, yeah, that Petty Crane, he's, he's a great guy, but he's got to learn to listen. And, uh, you know, uh, so it was, it was a great life lesson for Patty. He's a great, great choreographer, and you can see him. And, couple of other films, and if you knew him, you could recognize him. Anyway, I wanted to throw that out there because Henry V then popped up to me, and I'm going, Henry V is a great film. I mean, you know, if you're going to do Shakespeare, what he did with that, it's incredible. And Olivier being a being an actor primarily, although obviously a great director too, but I always think of him as a great actor. Well, he kicked butt with Henry V, but that's not my choice. Anyway, I got sidetracked by 
<laughs> by uh, Olivier. Um, so my second one is uh, Grace of Wrath. And mm. uh, a lot of that is influenced by, uh, by the book because I read the book a number of times. I love the, the social uh, commentary, <laughs> really heavy social commentary and personal commentary that uh, that the book made and the movie was able to capture a lot of that considering you can't read the book in two hours but you can see the movie in two hours that's usually the problem of taking a book down to a a movie um but like in key largo uh the, the supporting actress won the academy award in this case it was a uh, jane uh, darwell in key largo it was uh, claire trevor um just want to bring that up a little, little coinky dink there um, but Henry Fonda is great. Uh, the whole message is um, is just so heavy. And, and you see one thing I liked about the book, you see the truth about America, you know, in the 30s and coming right up to now, the same kind of consciousness existed. Um, the fact that they would burn the piles of oranges rather than give them to the poor Okies who they hated and tried to keep out of California and tried to put them in basic prisons camps when they when they got there. Uh, and the movie is uh, the movie was um, cinematographer was uh, Greg Toland, who was also a cinematographer on Citizen Kane and he, a number of other great films. He was uh, he was a superior guy, and uh, it really shows. I mean, black and white when it's done right, really you don't miss the color because the 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 shades of of gray and and and, the, and blacks are uh, are just as exquisite as the color. Uh, supposedly we humans only got color vision to uh for for greater self-defense because that way we could see the predators uh coming after us uh, easier wherever that's true or not i don't know but um but you certainly don't need it so my first few films were, were black and whites i realized didn't do that on purpose probably the third one too because what i'm doing here folks i got my list of six and i just said okay well i know i'm not getting rid of key largo i know i'm not getting rid of grace and now now i got a problem with number one because i got to choose between four films of which Casablanca and Citizen Kane were, were there, but I'm probably not going to choose those, even though I love them desperately, honestly. Well, Grapes uh, of Wrath was a phenomenal film. Just a phenomenal yeah. film. <clears throat> Number one picks, starting with <laughs> Mr. Fletcher. Oh, no. So, um... You got time, Dennis. I got to choose. I got to choose. <laughs> My number one, as I said, it's another uh, Powell and Pressburger um, who made a lot of movies in the 40s and at least four of them are masterpieces, which are The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp and Black Narcissus are the other two that they made. Um, but my number one, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, Matter of Life and Death from 1946. Um, it was made right after World War II as sort of like this they uh, a kind of effort from the british to make a movie to keep the bridges strong between the ally forces um and uh it's about a british soldier that falls in love or a british pilot that falls in love with an american uh radio operator uh played by oh it starts um, yeah. uh, i love this movie so much i completely lost track of um it stars david niven uh kim hunter and roger livesey um and it's just it's a british soldier falls in love with an american uh assistant i don't know the exact term for what she does but uh right before he is supposed to die but as he's jumping out of his airplane the angel that's sent to take him off to heaven misses him in the fog 
And so it's this big kind of sweep it and uh, defending your life like uh, pseudo comedy, pseudo drama um, with a lot of psychological ramifications to it. Um, it's beautifully shot in Technicolor, once again by Jack Cardiff, Technicolor and black and white for the heaven scenes. Um, and it's a beautiful movie to look at. It's really wonderful it makes me cry at the end every time um a very just beautiful film i i i i've been introduced now to the red shoes and a matter of life and death i have no clue i've never heard of them matter of life and death was released initially in the states as stairway to heaven um if that helps. <laughs> hey, Chase, I'm actually shocked because I know you like Martin Scorsese. The Red Shoes is like a pinnacle movie. I'm well, shocked you've never heard of it. I, I literally have it. I mean, I have learned a lot tonight and I can't wait to see these films. I cannot wait to see these films, especially with David Niven, who I love as an actor. Uh, I, this is young, prime Niven. Yeah. So I'm... I'm looking forward to seeing those and i wish i could comment on them i have no clue um this is another reason i like the podcast because you learn a lot of shit that yeah. you don't know uh okay so my number one and you guys are going to hate me for this what number one is is because in the 60s and 70s i acted a lot on stage even though i was in the marine corps for four years even while i was in the marine corps i acted locally in the local theaters cool. so i played hamlet and i played sir thomas more so man for all seasons it's one of my favorite films of all time and of course my number one film that i'm going to pick tonight is hamlet with the Libier. nice even though even though it doesn't follow the script but out a lot who does <laughs> uh, that's true but olivier you would expect him to follow the script but I just, I loved Olivier. I, I just, I, 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 I just love him as an actor. And um, the set was minimal. It was shot well. Um, uh, I just loved it. I, you know, I watched films like that and I just sat there and I'm mesmerized, you know, to be or not to be. Just, just doing that. Just I, I just sat there and I just I meld into that character because uh, because it just feels comfortable. That's it. It feels comfortable. Chase, um, can you do yourself a favor and watch David Tennant starring in Hamlet? Oh no, I've seen David Tennant do it. My my Shakespeare teacher actually was like, I like his version better, and that's controversial. She's like, I like his version better. But it's interesting for the times because when you think about it, he was basically an adolescent, but back then Hamlet would have been middle age at 20. So it was interesting how Tennant brought that to the piece, just an aside. On you know, as, as an aside on Hamlet, you know, one of my favorite uh, renditions of Hamlet was Richard Burton. Uh -huh. He's fantastic. Isn't Burton fantastic? I just, I love the I way, seen it. just his nuance with the character. He was so much more buoyant than Olivier was. Yeah. 
But still, I've seen in the pieces. 19- he did what? it in the six bits and pieces I've seen. He did it in the sixties, right, Chase? I do know the year he did it. Yeah. I don't mean to make this the Hamlet podcast, but Kenneth Branagh is my Hamlet. And he was interesting. He was in the <laughs> oh, yes. and he also he also uh, did what Lawrence Livia did and directed it as well, which is so hard to do when you're like the most talkative lead character ever, 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 ever. This this <laughs> is this was the only Ophelia that made me like emotional. Yes. Uh, who who you was Kate Winslet? One no. of the things I may do uh, as an aside is. I don't know if you're into this, Mr. Fletcher, but I know the other five of us are. I don't know you that well yet, but uh, I've got a shocking bomb to drop after this. But continue, please. But but <laughs> we might we might do because I'm thinking when Dennis was starting talking about uh, Henry the uh, what was it Henry the fifth Henry the fifth uh, one of those Henrys, but one of uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, yeah, I see your hands. Uh, one of one of the things we might do is Shakespeare on films with Kenneth Branagh. There's so many great ones out there. Sir, I, Patrick, I talk Stewart, about the Sir Patrick Stewart. Oh, yes. Phenomenal. Oh, I'm 100% on board, um, but I have never seen or read any version of Hamlet. That's okay. <laughs> Hamlet might be the biggest blind spot in my life. That's really fun because then you get to, you know. I'll be the, you know, I I know I'm a fan of some Shakespeare, but yeah. When you know, we get to the come, 90s, Shakespeare and Love will definitely be in my You could come out of it going, but... who wrote this shit? But no, <laughs> no shit. No shit. Yeah, Shakespeare was, yeah, he wasn't prolific at all. I mean, he just. Uh, in one one or two plays that got it with a pen, you think it would have gotten all done, you know? The globe and actually okay. I'm one sorry. of my so my number uh, one. I'm sorry. Oh uh, no, continue. Okay, so we'll my number it. one was Hamlet, and you guys all understand why. It's just uh, I'm being silly, but I just love that film. I watched it again last week, and I just went, oh, I love this shit. So anyway, number one for you, Mr. Todd. Well, this uh, this was interesting. My my number one changed actually earlier uh, in this recording. Um, uh, I had to go down between two movies, and they ended up being two films that I've I've uh, portrayed somewhat on stage. I've played Orson Welles and Austin Pendleton's Orson Shadow on stage. So this is like you, Chase. And then uh, I was also uh, Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life radio show uh, for two Christmases in a row, um, along with supporting characters like Uncle Billy and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm tired of Citizen Kane being number one. I can rattle off a whole bunch of reasons and I'm kind of a cross between Orson Welles and George Bailey anyway. Uh, but I had, to go, I had to go with It's a Wonderful Life as my number one. Um, uh, for a number of reasons, and, and Bridget has already covered beautifully many of them, and we already had that conversation, but I'm going to throw in a, a, a personal anecdote about it, and then we can just move on, and this is the biggest reason why I went with It's a Wonderful Life, is uh, a number of years ago, I came out of the theater scene around here, and it was very toxic for me. I had been doing it for 20 years, and I had ended up in a very kind of just just depressive place. I had been volunteering my time for 20 years. 
uh, helped run a theater for 20 years, was our artistic director for 10 years. And, you know, without getting into the weeds of it and changing the names, you know, for the innocent, um, it just, I came out of it very, very despondent, um, feeling like I had wasted a lot of my time. Chase knows, knows about this and Freeman knows a little bit about this. But um, so basically I came out of it just being like, I've wasted my time for 20 years. So, and New Hampshire Theater Project, which is a local theater, uh, they actually took me in because I had been doing shows with them before and I knew them quite well. And I think they had caught wind locally that some shit had gone down and um, they were putting together It's a Wonderful Life and they offered uh, a few of the roles to me because it was, it's, it's a radio show and we were able to do just the voices on stage. It's like a live, live radio show. Um, so it's very old timey, but at the same time, very forward thinking in, in terms of how it was presented. And being able to do It's a Wonderful Life on stage, um, I bonded with the cast of five, five or six so closely. And I was playing Clarence to, uh, his name is Peter Josephson, uh, one of, a, a very dear friend and a great performer who was playing George Bailey. So we had these scenes every single night on stage together um, and he had known a lot of what I had gone through. So there were multiple levels to the emotion where he was feeling, as George Bailey, he was feeling very much the way I was feeling in my life at the time. And I, as Clarence, was able to say things to him that I needed to hear. And every night at the end of the, at the performance, uh, we would look in each other's eyes on stage and have the, uh, the last few lines of, uh, no man is, uh, any man who has friends has success. I forget the exact term, the, the quote right now, but any, any man who has friends it has success. And we would look in each other's eyes every night with that. And it was very, very healing, you know? So that to me, and, and I agree with everything else you, you had said before that it's, it's, it's very relevant right now with banks and foreclosures and, and the community, you know, breaking apart and, you know, the haves and have nots and all that. So it's, it's very relevant story, but personally it was so relevant that that to me is the power of film, that a film from 1946 has so many elements that I could gravitate to that even performing it on stage, I was having like, you know, actors have moments where they feel very much within the realm of the, what they're performing and they're not thinking about other things, you know. Um, and that show, I did it two years in a row, brought it back a lot for me. And I'm not sure if I'll ever act again, but if that was- What? What? You're gonna act again. <laughs> ah, well, we'll see. But that project, I, that's a good one for me to go out on. And that, again, that to me is like the reason why I picked number one for the 1940s, because if a movie from the 1940s has, can have that impact on me in 2021, at 40, I'm 46, <laughs> you know, um, that's a timeless film. I don't care what anyone says. That's a timeless film. So that was why I chose number one. I'm applauding. People <laughs> listening, I am applauding. Okay. Okay, so I, I, I think we've spent a lot of time on Capra, but uh, let's, or Kafka. Uh, Kafka. Yeah. <laughs> what so, a blend, huh? <laughs> 
Is that is that uh, Grace? That's my mom. Is that Grace? Hi, Grace. Hi, mom. <laughs> Holding up a finger gun to Dennis's Crashing. head like we're in a film oh. noir. And she's dinner <laughs> time. <laughs> okay, uh, Brigitte, it's uh, your turn, number one. Yeah. So Todd, my number one. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to thank Todd for sharing that with us. I yeah, that was beautiful. It's a tough. Yeah, I, I get that. So I'm glad that it was a good and that that art healed you, it destroyed you, and then healed you. So it like breaks you down, builds you up, right? Thanks for sharing. It's that. art does that. Art does that. Sorry, Brigitte. No, no worries. I yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I I'm plus one to everything you said. It's just so good. Um, yes, my number one is uh, the gentleman's agreement um, with Gregory Peck. Uh, it's such a dark horse for number one for me. I I remember watching it as a teenager and feeling like this is a. I felt like it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen, and uh, I rewatched it for the second time because I was thinking about my top three, and I was like, oh, I should rewatch that. I really liked it, and I feel. It's this perfect intersection of like, this film needed to be made in the forties and it reaches across time and it's important for people to watch now because it's got a really nuanced conversation about prejudice and about not just, so for those that don't know, it's about this writer who is not Jewish. He's asked to do a piece on anti-Semitism, and he goes undercover as a Jew and lives the prejudice and you know his kid is like bullied at school and like he's you know refused certain things like you know as he's getting like engaged and stuff and it's it's really about it's really about that nuanced space that lives between extremism and like everyday microaggressions and that and it's like how those things build up and it's like this conversation that we're having now nationally still of course, not as much about anti-Semitism as it is about like Black Lives Matter being more in the mainstream and stuff like that now. But really, it's it's an incredible film. I, I was like, this is from the 40s. And like, of course it is. And it has to be um, because it's really so resonant for they're not talking about Nazis, you know, and they call them they don't call them the Karens. They call them the Cathy's. These like oh, rich. Yeah. These rich white women that are just like you know, oh, well, I'll never, I'll never go to an anti-Semitic march, but like, I will laugh at a Jew joke, you know, like th these little things that like make it possible to hold people down in society. And um, uh, it, it's, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. It's about like Americans, you know, it's, it's really about like, we're, we're not going to villainize anyone. And she grows by the end of it, like this character who she, she knows he's not Jewish and she's going to be engaged to him. And she can't stand that he's pretending to be Jewish because she has to like socially be engaged with him. And like, and she's just like, oh no, we can't have my friends come to this thing. Or like, please don't say it. We, we can let them know it's you're not really Jewish, right? Like it's, it's mind blowing and so so nuanced for a film from the 40s which I feel often can hit things over the head you know sometimes <laughs> this theme is so well so well done and uh more people need to know about it and watch it I loved I loved the way that Gregory Peck learned through this whole cycle how anti-semitism worked in America 
he actually learned a lot by doing that. Yeah, and internalized racism as well. It because was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because there's this scene with his secretary where um, when she finds out he's Jewish, she's like, I changed my name too. And she kind of like lets him in on that. But then she's like, oh, you know, we don't want. And then she uses a derogatory term for essentially black people. Um, she's like, we don't want those ones coming into the office, though. And he's wow. like, he's like, seriously, like, you know, you had to change your name to get this job. Like, you know what it's like. And he's, his, it's, it's amazing all these levels that I'm like, wow, this was, this was being shown in the 40s. I, I want people to see it. I haven't Cycle seen a modern history. film as good as this about this. Well, it won the Academy Award. It did. Yes. Uh, Kate, number one. Guys, um, yeah, so my number one is Casablanca. <laughs> Um, and I have to be honest, I think this is the first time possibly that I saw it full, full way through, believe it or not. I mean, I'd seen bits and pieces before, which is kind of crazy, right? But like I had prefaced earlier, this isn't really my genre, although I love Bogey. And I mean, I, what I was thinking as, because I took notes on all the films, I was thinking with this film, I just want to like, for a day, whether I'm talking or answering questions. I just want to use a quote from Casablanca because it pretty much fills the full spectrum of a conversation. Again, Peter Laurie's in this. He boosts anything that he's in. Ingrid Bergman, um, who I watched last night in Gaslight. Um, I also think it's interesting the way women were portrayed because I know in a lot of the nuance they're portrayed as, you know, you have the brassy, but then there's these damsel in, in distress and I actually think she was a bona fide damsel in distress in this, but I also didn't, I don't know. I, they, some, they somehow are, as much as I thought they were omnipotent on, in some level, they're disempowered in others. Like she, oh, I'm too, you know, I'm, I'm too strong. You, you think for both of us, I was just like, oh my God, there were definitely times where my eyes were rolling in the back of my head. Like, Hey, just, you know, get through the movie. But no, I, I actually really enjoyed it. Peter Lorre, amazing. I mean, anything he's in. And in a lot of films, I mean, with the exception of M, most of his films, right, are he's a character actor in a small portion of the film. And if you guys haven't seen M, that's from the 1930s. Oh, yeah. Um, before the film. Nazi, yeah, takeover. I mean, it basically set the stage for all four films to follow. And I feel like with Casablanca, Right, Bogey is kind of like the pinnacle of what, and you guys tell me if I'm wrong on this, but he kind of was the model for what a guy wanted to be on screen. And I look at people like even Jack Nicholson, who's one of my favorite, and Don Johnson and Miami Vice. I mean, the way they speak, their expressions, they all, whether they want to be Bogey or there's reminiscence of Bogey within them. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to this film in that there's, there's a lot of films to follow that have taken obviously from it, but also him as this larger than life leaving male, so many um, of his, um, you know, the subsequent male leads. Yeah, oh, yes. Right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, there was so, I think my favorite line, 
I mean, one of my favorite, there were so many. <laughs> if it's December 1941 in Casablanca, what time is it in New York? I don't know. I just, <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess I'm an easy target, but there were just a lot of really good um, one-liners I thought in this. It had a really good message, um, you know, redemption essentially. And um, I don't know, I guess maybe in a corny way, like love, and forgiveness healed him to be able to become human again. Um, not so, you know, I guess love in, in the romantic sense, but when people use the word love, I, I think it has healing modalities, but there's so much more to it than just romantic love. Love really does heal and it opens people up. So he becomes in a way human again and he's turned off on so many, on so, on so many levels, but, um, I was going to give it an honorable mention, but I think it's pretty much tied with number one, in my opinion, and that's Detour. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the movie Detour. Yeah. So I think with Detour, I'm trying to find the year. I'm trying to find one minute after this. Um, I actually didn't rewatch it because I've already seen it like three times, but like Bogey and how he is for subsequent leading males in Hollywood, I felt this film was kind of a, um, a cornerstone for a lot of the noirs, for lack of a better term. And that, I mean, just blood simple, you know, right? The Coen brothers first film, and then even like David Lynch's, I think a lot of his aspects of his films, but especially Lost Highway, right? That highway scene when there's only there. Yeah. So um, I think with Detour, also the way it kind of starts in the middle of the movie. Um, so yeah, those are my, I mean, we're way over time, but I think if you haven't seen Detour, it looks like a lot of people have seen it. Um, that definitely is up there. Yeah, Brigitte, Brigitte sure. and I are gonna yell at each other about Casablanca for a long time. But, I uh, will speak firmly, but calmly. <laughs> I don't know about you. I just, I, I, I thought it held though. Like, I, I mean, I was, like bursting out laughing in certain parts. Oh yeah, it's 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 got everything. I, I just think Casablanca has got everything. In an hour That's and a half, it does everything. It. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dennis, number one. Okay, I'll be brief. I want to know, uh, my number one was between uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre and How Green Was My Valley. So I went with How Green with my, Was My Valley because it's more positive, I think, <laughs> than a treatise on greed, as is uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre. But um, how many people have seen here have seen uh, How Green Was My Valley? You showed it to me. I what? started I but haven't it. finished it. And I Green saw O'Hara, yes. I was really excited when you said Treasure of <laughs> Sierra Madre. But <laughs> What's that? I'm sorry, Fabian. I was I was really excited with the first one because uh, I was like, I've seen that. I love that movie, but I haven't well, seen how great. Yeah, it's a tough yet. choice. That's a great film and great performance uh, by by Bogart again. Um, but how green was my valley? Makes some uh, again some social and some personal and some familial statements that are just heartrending, and it's a great um, it's a great example of um, the working man being at the mercy of management and uh, how they can be uh, just totally destroyed by it. Um, but it's beautifully done. John Ford, director. Um, um, yeah, and Roddy McDowell, uh, who I never. Roddy McDowell, of. yes, the Not kid. He's an actor, but yeah, but he, uh, you know, he has a great part in this as a kid and uh, does does really well. So, 
So I'm I'm picking that as number one. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I just know I was really, really moved the first time I How saw it. How did you I feel like, about the voiceover, Dennis? How did you feel about the narration of it? Well, you know, a lot of times that's uh, that that really helps fill in some of the gaps. You don't have to have the scenes necessarily connect as much as you do without that. So narration didn't bother me in this. In some cases it does. In some cases it's too much. But um, but uh, no, it's 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 fine here. And I think, again, what what it says, what the movie says. And and, you know, so I've, I've got um, I've got uh, John Huston and John Ford, my my top four <laughs> movies as the directors. Um Kind of, kind of crowding it in, but uh, but really, in thinking about it, for me, that was uh, the movie that moved me the most from the '40s. And by God, there are a bunch of them. It's really hard to choose. You could go down, as we all know, a list of dozens, and say, "Well, yeah, that could be my yep." That one's well, that one's pretty good too. So, anyway, that's it. If you haven't seen it, uh, see it because it's very moving. And uh, gosh, there were a whole bunch. But anyway, Boy, it's 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 such a bleak film. It's such a dark film. Uh, uh, you know about the, the 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 travails that these families go through. This yeah, week. Welsh Welsh miners. Yep. Yep, Welsh miners. Okay, guys. Okay, we're going to wrap it up, and and I I just want to briefly just kind of state that you know we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the little foxes, the Lady Eve. The Magnificent Andersons, Yankee Doodle. Well, of course, that'll come up in another story. Double Indemnity, I'm glad we got that. Chase, like Chase we... are you an Ambersons fan? What? <clears throat> Loving Orson Welles. Are you a Magnificent Ambersons fan? I'm not a big Ambersons fan. No, not okay. at all. But I'm uh, a big Ambersons fan. <laughs> I liked it a lot, too. Um, yeah, I think it's Freeman. great. It, it definitely suffered from studio meddling, but I think it's yes, really... Yes, it did. Still... It did. Uh, maintains a strong core and we didn't talk about anything about the big sleep uh notorious uh, i i saw the big uh, sleep 1978 so there's a lot of films that we didn't talk about today no one talked about the maltese falcon i was surprised yeah, i exactly. went to see that bridget and i didn't get a chance to uh well, the maltese falcon, yeah so right cool. i mean I mildred, mildred pierce gilda and red river yes the Westerner, and the Bank. You know, but those, I think the darling, my darling Clementine and Red River will come up in the next. I think it will. Yeah. Now that I know we're separating. Yeah. The, the next list is going to be interesting. Yeah. So the only one doing... that I, uh, the only one that I had on my list that didn't get touched was the third man. Um, oh, also yeah. With oh, yummy Joseph well, Cotton. Yeah. yeah. Um, Joseph so. Cotton. Yeah. The third man. I'm going to write that down. I have not That's seen on my that. list. I'm, oh. I'm, glad, I'm glad that, oh, Rope didn't come up. Uh, the third man didn't come up. White Heat didn't come up. Uh, We're just doing dramas right now, right, Chase? Yeah, but White Heat. I thought you said the Lady oh, Eve. Yeah. Lady Eve's definitely a Lady Eve. Gaslight. I mean, I mentioned too. Gaslight, yeah. but. Gaslight. That was, but, oh, I, Todd, I was thinking partway through, I'm like, I would love to like call Todd and like, if this was like real life, I'd like hit up jazz and we'd go over and pay him a visit. Like, that's all, could, that's all I could think of. Oh my God, Charles Boyer was like, they should have just called him Beelzebub with it. He was just the <laughs> devil. Yeah. No one mentioned uh, Gilda, which is interesting. No, Even no, though it's no, not no. a great 
it's not a great film, but it's like it's very notable. Yeah. I think Rita Hayworth. Gilda's God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was. Gilda's one mom, of those movies that yeah I. There was so much buildup to it when when I saw it, I was like, "This is just a Casablanca clone." It's a really good Casablanca <laughs> clone. Wrong. The third man's also kind of a Casablanca clone, but, but it just. But as Todd was saying, Rita Hayworth, it's like Marilyn Monroe has nothing on Rita Hayworth. Nothing. First time I saw Gilda when she done, I know it's the famous me. You know, she looks up with the. I swear <laughs> to God, my heart stopped for one second when I saw that. And I'm like, this is insane. I cannot stop watching this woman. She is incredible. I yeah. understand what Orson, why Orson went so hard for her and was in with her in the Lady from Shanghai. I'm like, Lady from Shanghai, also a great one. Yeah. I met her. I met her agent years ago, and he had a ton of Rita Hayworth stories, and I was uncomfortable with a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> was, she, was she wild, Bridget? Um, I think she was wounded in the same way that a lot of people know that Marilyn Monroe was. It's like that oh. sex icon of like, yeah. you can tell that there's something about having to become that charming to survive is yeah. like a really deep scar, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, also, guys, we're going to have to wrap so, it up. Okay. So Chase, we're going to meet for the top three comedies of 1940s next time? Comedy slash doing? other. Comedy slash other. Okay, yeah. I already did one other. We have mixed back. <laughs> yeah. Top three. Yeah, top three. I mean, think Wait, about it. Think about it. Todd, so I like I like a top mixed five, bag. I like I a good mixed bag. <laughs> okay. Okay, guys. Hey. This yeah. is awesome. Nice yeah, meeting you guys. Yeah, same. Yeah, same guys. Take care, guys. Bye. 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 This is Chase Bailey from Left Bank Films. We really hope you enjoyed our podcast, The Love of Film, at least as much as we did enjoy making it. Tonight's episode one dealt with our favorite films from the 1940s. For further information and more podcasts, please visit leftbankfilms.com slash theloveoffilm. You will also find the results of this podcast posted there. Thank you very much.